Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Modern Data Show. Uh, for today's episode, we have Namdi Eric Bulam joining us from San Francisco, California, and he is a coder, an economist, and a venture investor currently working as a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, uh, where he has worked with companies like Red Panda, Materialize, Metallion, and Voltren Data. Uh, before Lightspeed, Namdi was also an investor at Iconic Capital uh, before joining actually as a product manager at Confluent. Uh, amongst the many deals that Namdi has sourced or invested in, some of the most prominent names are GitLab, Epic Games, Alteryx, Uber, SurveyMonkey, Snorkel, and Fastly. Uh, Namdi was also selected for Forbes 30 Under 30 Venture Capital and Venture Capital Journal 40 Under 40. Welcome to the show, Namdi. It's going to be fun. Good. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for pronouncing my name correctly, too. You didn't even ask me how to pronounce, but you got it right on the money. So I'm already impressed. Yeah, I did my homework. I did my homework. So thank you so much, Namdi. So let's first start with your journey from being a coder to now a VC. How is it going? Good. Good. The things are quite related and, and, and intersecting. So... Um, I, I see a lot of benefits from having both skill sets. Uh, I've always been a huge technical nerd, uh, was sort of self-taught programming growing up, uh, PHP websites back in the day, uh, I would try and monetize them using Google AdSense and different things like that. I would get these checks in the mail from Google every month. Um, the minimum payout was a hundred dollars. So I usually just barely make the minimum and I get, I get a check. My parents would wonder why Google was sending me money in the mail. I wish I tried not to explain too much, um, but it was pretty clear to me that my career was going to involve technology in some capacity. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like venture is the best way to kind of, for me to participate in this broader kind of Silicon Valley ecosystem. And uh, then again, those learning skills come in, come in, in handy. So. That, that's, that's super interesting because I see a lot of VCs uh, are you know, ex-engineers and, uh, uh, you know, once you are in the game, that's how you really understand stuff that's going around. So that's super interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your time at Confluent. You were a product manager at Confluent. Yeah, Confluent is um, just an amazing company. So an amazingly technical company. So one thing to understand about my background is I never uh, ever worked as an engineer formally. It was always self-taught. And when you're self-taught, it is easy to think that you know what you're talking about <laughs> um, because you've never been in a formal environment for anybody to tell you that you didn't know what you were talking about. And so the experience at Confluent was um, great specifically because, um, you know, Confluent is such a technical company. Nachi Kafka is such a technical piece of um, technology. And for me, it was like a great experience to you basically verify that I knew what I was talking about and verify that there was some benefit to this combination of being both technical and business-minded. Spending a lot of time in, in the Valley, you can presume that everybody has that, but it's actually not the case. There are a lot of folks who, you know, let's say engineers who are just focused on that and frankly don't want to have to think about business concerns. There's a lot of folks who are totally focused on the commercial side of things and don't uh, have a ton of technical uh, capability despite working in tech. Into being someone who had like both sides and being able to kind of liaise on between those different uh, groups was actually quite valuable. And, uh, and so I, I cherish the experience both for uh, all the things I learned there and the sort of uh, 
it was a confidence booster. I was like, yeah, I'm, 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 I have a skill set that isn't just like what everybody else has. So there is a bunch of questions that I have around real time streaming and, uh, you know, real time infrastructure for you. But before I get into that, let me ask you the first basic question that probably I would ask to any VC working in data. What's your thesis on investing in data companies? I see you have invested in a lot, in a lot, right? So what's your thesis around investment when it comes to specifically around data companies? There's all sorts of ways you can kind of tell this story. I'll just give maybe sort of one version of it. Typically within enterprise sort of technology, the companies that have the largest market opportunities, the companies that can achieve the largest scales are the ones who aggregate a enterprise relevant um, sort of modality of some sort and um, do that at scale, do that in a production context and that drive all the different sort of fundamental units of infrastructure consumption, particularly compute, storage, networking. And one of the great things about data infrastructure is that it tends to do all three, compute, storage, and networking. Everything about like a snowflake, obviously the compute if you're doing uh, transformation of the data within Snowflake, the storage goes without saying, and then the network in terms of data going in and out of Snowflake drives utilization. And so when you put dollar signs and all those different things and then multiply by the relevant quantities and then add them all up, you get to large market sizes very quickly. <laughs> and so as an investor, it's like one of the most perennially interesting and sort of profitable, uh, categories to be investing in. You know, versus like other parts of like the enterprise tooling or infrastructure where you're only getting one of these things, perhaps, and maybe two, but to get the kind of full triumvirate, you know, data infrastructure is like one of the few. And so that's like a very kind of like high level sort of way of thinking about it. Um, I think within data infrastructure, the companies that are even more interesting than the rest of the field are the ones that achieve this sort of data gravity, just not the most data and holding it within that system. Splunk did a great job of this. Um, Snowflake is doing a great job of this today. Um, and then it's just super interesting. The technical problems that need to be solved around data infrastructure are some of the hardest within this entire ecosystem. So it's like they, some people say it takes 10 years to build a database. The reason it takes 10 years is not because V1 takes 10 years, because V whatever enterprises actually want takes 10 years. These things have to be hardened. These things have to be tested. You have to be fault tolerant. Uh, they have to be able to handle you know, large scale production grade, you know, transactional workloads, you know, what have you. So it's super complicated. And so if you're able, if you have a technical expertise and you're able to build, you almost have an implicit moat uh, because of all that sort of sunk R&D dollars that go into it. And then to my earlier point, you have a basically a guaranteed market because there is enterprise spend happening for this. It's not one of these things where it's, you know, you're not sure if they'll come if you build it. It's, you're much more sure they'll, that they'll be interested if you build from into high quality you know, data infrastructure technology. So those are like some of the reasons why it's so interesting to me as, and I think most investors, but, but yeah. Yeah. And another thing that was coming across very strongly across, if, if you look at your investment portfolio is, uh, this good focus on this modern real time data stack, right? You have got materialized, you have got vectorized, uh, which is, which is basically red panda. What was so interesting about these companies? And I, I think so you invested very heavily into these companies. Why? Yeah. It's a little bit related to my 
experience at Confluent, but um, there's sort of this shift in um, infrastructure systems that is ongoing and it's not even remotely close to being done, but it's a sort of shift from more like batch oriented systems to what is referred to as real time. And what does that mean? Traditionally, you know, data infrastructure systems uh, operated in a sort of batch oriented way, which meant that you operated on large sets of data periodically. So once a day or once in a, whatever it was, you would ingest a bunch of new data and you would do some sort of massive transformation on that data and you would extract a bunch of data. And it was this like clockwork thing that would happen on the daily schedule or whatever it was. And um, that worked fine for a long time. But what it meant was that in the interim between a sort of big their changeover, data was effectively stale because you only had data that was as correct as the most recent change. And so if you're, if it's 12 o'clock on a Tuesday and the last thing was at midnight, the data by definition is 12 hours old at least. And so um, that was a status quo that worked well for a long time, but you know, over time, more and more businesses, um, partly driven by consumer demand, partly driven by technical innovations that have happened have wanted to shift towards what is now referred to as real time. So data that's being updated, ingested, transformed, what have you on an ongoing basis throughout the day, throughout the hour, throughout the minute. And, um, it turns out that it's not just a matter of like turning some knobs and dials on your old systems to get them to work in real time. A lot of these things need to be rewritten basically from scratch in order to be performant enough for this sort of real time setting. So that creates a ton of opportunity to not just like recreate things that already existed, but with a real time, uh, capability to it, but then also new systems that just couldn't have existed in any shape or form in the prior kind of batch, uh, setting. And so Confluent laid the groundwork for a lot of this, but, um, there's a sort of emerging set of other companies that are, um, uh, sort of drafting off of that and, um, and creating their own opportunities. Your red panda is one of them, one of our investments. Um, it's a real time, uh, streaming engine rewritten, uh, in C++, which is a lot more performant that sort of prior systems, um, it has a lot better developer experience, it's a lot easier to use and so the hope is that it opens up the kind of streaming ecosystem to a much broader group of developers. Materialize is an analytics database that's specifically for your real time data. Um, again, this is an area that tends to change when you want to do it in a real time setting and you need to kind of rethink the whole thing. Um. Um, we're also, um, investors in some other companies that some of which are installed and will be announced hopefully in the, in the coming months. But, um, yeah, we're heavily invested in, in real time. I'm personally very involved in it. And again, there's sort of these technical modes that you get if you do it right. And so all the people we work with in this realm are like, I mean, just like the most technically brilliant people you'll ever meet. Um, and so it's, it's, it's definitely a lot of fun for me. And so if you talk about specifically more about real time, you have got real time ETL stuff like, you know, Kafka is not exactly an ETL, but ways to move data from one place to other. You have Kafka, you've got Red Panda, you've got Pulsar. And then uh, from a stream processing perspective, you've got stuff like Flink and Samza, uh, even a couple of newer newer ones that, that are coming around the whole idea of stream processing, complex event processing. And then you finally have real-time analytics databases, Materialize or KS SQL DB, uh, again from Confluent, ClickHouse having some of those materialized views functionality 
personalities now. Uh, and then uh, I saw in one of your articles, you also mentioned the stuff about real-time machine learning, the, the stuff like tech ten. Do you think enterprises are ready to be able to consume the data in real time? We have we have got a lot of progress in terms of building the infrastructure to be able to produce and store and process this real time data, real time analytics, and real time uh, data insights. But do you think do you think the enterprises are from a broader sense there would be few kind of leaders who would be able to consume that? But from a general market perspective, do you think the enterprises are ready for real time? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, on the one hand, like I'm quite excited about this shift to real time, and I definitely think it's happening. And there, there's certain pockets where it's very clearly happening. Like you know, a lot of um, consumer-centric companies, or you have highly kind of transactional data. You have a lot of data coming in. Um, there's a desire on the consumer end to um, sort of have these updates or be have their kind of these applications react in real time to what's going on and that can improve the user experience in different ways depending on the setting. Netflix is a classic example of this where they've done a lot of things in real time. You know, Uber has done a lot of things, Lyft have done a lot of real uh, things in real time to improve the user experience. So I think the case in more um, consumer-centric companies has already been made. Like, yes, they are ready and they want this stuff. Um, on the uh, more B2B side, I think the... Um, the market is definitely still evolving or emerging um, for various reasons, like B2B use cases aren't as real-time as consumer use cases tend to be, but they are becoming more real-time. So for example, in certain areas like um, financial technology, there's almost every uh, sort of uh, trading technology, uh, you know, tech firm, almost every, all these um, like crypto exchanges and whatnot, they all use streaming. All of them, they all use real-time infrastructure because they want these sort of real-time updates in terms of what's happening in their market to be broadcast to um, their respective communities. And so um, that's one area that's been growing quite rapidly, but I think the rest of the enterprise is just coming along as well. Part of the reason that it has been tougher uh, to date is that the tooling, I think, has lagged the interest in this kind of capabilities. And frankly, the skill set is still there's very few people who really get this stuff. And if you're like a typical organization who doesn't necessarily have access to this skill set, it can be quite daunting to say, oh, we're going to spin up a real-time ML system or something. You can barely find just generic data scientists, let alone someone who can do this stuff in like an online real-time uh, context. So um, there's still a, a talent problem, there's still a tooling problem. But the desire to do it, I think it's there. I think people want to do this stuff. Um, they can only be enabled. Another thing that we are seeing a lot is uh, a lot of investments in the modern data stack has come in in building the core infrastructure of you know, producing the data, storing it into a data warehouse, putting it into a place that where it can be consumed. But the mode of consumption of this data hasn't changed in past 20 years. It was always dashboards, still dashboards. And... What's do you, what do you think what's next in when it, term, when it comes to consuming this data, consuming this huge amount of data that is being generated by the organizations? Yeah, so I think, um, I think to your point, dashboards are still a thing and aren't, aren't going away anytime soon. But if I had to highlight another kind of modality for accessing this data that I think is um, growing very quickly, I would describe it as ad hoc code-based 
um, sort of querying and analytics. So particularly SQL and Python, if you think about the number of people who are familiar with those languages is only growing over time and, and it's growing quite rapidly, especially in the case of Python, but also in the case of SQL. Um, there are more and more people who can plausibly just write a SQL query into your data warehouse, or write up a Python, some kind of short Python script to do some sort of data analysis. And that's the end of the analysis. They're not, it's not getting sent to some dashboard. They actually just want the immediate result and then that they have what they need. I think there's a lot of that happening. There's a lot more of it going to be happening going forward. And I think the barriers to learning those specific languages are low enough that you could actually see a large number of people kind of doing that. Uh, more kind of technically savvy business users um, within your organization, not just the data engineers, not just the data scientists, what have you. So I think that's emerging for sure. And what exactly the kind of like products of that space will look like. Um, I think the story is still being told, but I think that is the one thing I'd be on the lookout for. Yeah, I think so. We are seeing one of uh, one of those early signals of that when it comes. If you look at the popularity of tools like Hex, you know, yes, uh, allowing people to build those data applications in a very simple way. So I think so. Uh, you're right in that. The next thing that, uh, which is something that we kind of uh, ask very often, is. Uh, what's happening in the modern data space is there are lot of being lot of solutions that are being pushed to a lot of problems on modern data stack.xyz we've got around like 30 different categories of products that are out there do you think that's happening do you think are apart from the few obvious ones dbt or maybe kafka's and stuff like fivetran do you think we are in a situation where we have a lot of vendors pushing out a lot of solutions that are overlapping, positioning themselves as category creators around those categories? Uh, do you think that's happening or do you think, no, these are the real tools and technologies that are needed by these companies? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I tend to be a little bit contrarian in the sense that like, once a term exists, it's almost certainly overblown. <laughs> use the modern data stack as an example, like, you know, I, you, you, you know better than I do what that term probably means at this point, since you, you named the whole thing after it, but, uh, but I think it's still a little up in the air what exactly that means. To me, it means like a cloud data warehouse of some sort, and then things that plug into it, but that's, that's up for debate, I guess. Um, to your actual like question, look, I think, um, I love nerding out about all these different technologies and I think they're all really interesting. Um, in terms of the business opportunity, I think it's tougher, mainly because I think the poster child of the modern data stack has been, you know, either Snowflake or DBT and just most companies don't have, aren't going to be able to find that synergy between the data warehouse and some other technology as tightly as DBT has managed to, it's just, there's something special about ETL and that it attaches to your data warehouse at a very high rate. Like if you have a data warehouse, you basically need ETL. Like it's just, it's just a thing. Um, but if you're like a company that's trying to do ML out of the data warehouse, I don't know to what extent people want to do, like just the fact that someone has a data warehouse means that they want to use ML that's pointing at that data warehouse as a source of truth directly. I think it's like up for debate. You can go through the list of all these different things, whether it's ETL or operational analytics or feature stores or whatever, and ask the question, like, really, the data warehouse need to be the kind of more connective tissue for this thing? Um, so that's, that's one. 
Um, and then two is there's a competitive point amongst these different vendors and like, how do you differentiate? I think it's hard the typical data analyst or data engineer in an organization is just being inundated with, oh, use our X for Y or use our Z for A or B for D. And it's just like, it's such a mess at this point. And most organizations can barely wrangle all the tools they're already using. It's like a very common story to your company. You want to spin up a data stack or a modern data stack. You buy four or five of these tools and six months later, you're like, what, you know, what? <laughs> Not, not, you're not, you're not the province land, um, and, and, and you need help. And so, um, I think it becomes tricky over time. Um, again, the nerd in me doesn't care. The nerd in me just loves more tools, more technology is better. The investor in me starts to kind of scratch his head after a, a bit, but, um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, you, you you talked about ETL uh, and uh, you've also invested in this company called Metillion and uh, Metillion has been there for a while and a lot of players that we're seeing emerging in the ETL space, you've got, uh, you know, the recent one being like Airbyte, you've got Meltano. What's your take on the overall ETL market space? Do you think it's a problem that's solved, that's already solved? There is already too much maturation. Is it like the new CRM? We've got so many tools, we've got so many technologies. Or do you still think that there are problems that needs to be solved in the ETL space? It's a good question. Um, but to your point, like ETL as a sort of technology has um, existed for some time, even before all these cloud data warehouses. But I think those systems had to evolve for the cloud. I think that was a big leap for ETL. But let's say if we fast forward and cloud is a dominant paradigm, are there more sort of leaps that have to be made? I'm not sure. I tend to think that for most use cases, for the kind of median uh, user, the existing tooling is basically good enough. But there's always these things around the edges, the, the sort of edge cases where these tools start to fall over a little bit. So um, there's, sort of, there's definitely more innovation to be had, but I think the bulk of the distribution of use cases is being reasonably well addressed uh, today. Uh, another thing that comes to my mind is what do you think the role open source play in the modern data stack? You must have come across a lot of open source companies pitching to you guys on the modern data stack. What's your take on that? Do you think apart from the obvious benefits, the obvious business benefits of using an open source system, open source technology, what if, if someone were to come and pitch an open source solution to an existing solution, let's say in the modern data stack, what thought comes to your mind? Um, the thought that immediately comes to mind is like, why? And not because I don't like open source, I love open source. Um, but it's become, going back to my point that once a term exists, it tends to be overused or it tends to be overblown. Like if it's become this sort of like default thing where people say, oh, we're building an open source, whatever. And they haven't really thought through what, why it needs to be open source and what trade-offs they're implicitly making by doing so. It's funny because some of the core, the most important companies in the modern data stack, like let's just pick two, like Snowflake and then let's say Fivetran, those are not open source, uh, not really, um, and yet, right? And so um, I think it's like an important question for people to ask. Historically, like in the past, open source was sort of, oh, we had this like collaborative development process and people are going to be sending, you know, committing to our repo and it's going to be great to the community and everything. I think that's becoming less and less a thing um and it's becoming more and more just a unless we're open source people won't use us and he's becoming increasingly the reason actually why people are going open source 
it's more of a way to open doors than it is a way to push code um, and then actually develop the technology. And so I just, for me, it's like either answer is fine. Like maybe you yeah. are focused on this community thing. Maybe you're more focused on the go-to-market implications. It either can make sense. I just ask founders, like, just know why. And a lot of people surprisingly don't know why they're open source. Um, so it's, it's more important that they have an answer than what particular answer is. That's a, that's a great advice. That's a great advice. And what would be that one company in the whole modern data stack, apart from the obvious ones, let's say, let's ignore Snowflakes and DBT for a while. What's that one company you wish you would have invested in? <laughs> the, the problem is this category is so hot. You just wish you were in all of them a little bit. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to pick just one. I'd be lying if I said there was one that was, um, so much more obvious. And I, and I have personally been lucky enough to be involved in some of these companies invested so um, yeah hard, hard to pick one okay <laughs> yeah no no worries before before we wrap up there's just one last question we would want uh to leave uh, leave you with uh is what would be that one advice that you would give to all the founders who are building for the data strike for who are building data companies what would be that one advice for these founders from your side the one uh, piece of advice it's obviously this is a fast growing, developing categories, where it's like to be in. From a go-to-market standpoint, merely saying you're the X or Y or Z for the modern data stack is not enough. This has become like the default pitch for tools in this space where A, B, C, X, Y, Z for the modern data stack, they think that that's going to build a business. It's not, that's just not enough. There's so many other tools out there at this point. Um, there's so many folks in, but people will often be like, oh, we're going to hang out in the DBT Slack channel and build our community via that. I'm like, you and every other person, it's like the, the town square at this point. So what I would encourage like founders building this space is obviously get the tech right. That goes without saying, but then think real long and hard about what your go-to-market strategy is going to be and how you're going to break out from what is frankly a quite noisy space. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. That's a great one. And uh, just last thing here. So uh, tell us a little bit about Lightspeed. At what stage do you guys invest? Tell us a little bit about uh, what what should a founder do if they want to come and pitch to you guys? Yeah. So, you know, we're, um, you know, a large tenured venture firm. We've been investing for 20 plus years at this point. We're investors across all stages, early, late, across all categories, enterprise, consumer, fintech, crypto, healthcare, uh, we're back some of the most impressive Silicon Valley stories out there. We've invested in some of the most interesting global companies out there. I specifically focused on new enterprise technology and it's a place where we've um, been quite active over the years. It's one of the places that we were most known for. In fact, uh, reach out, do something interesting on build an interesting open source project. We're quite technical as a team. We love to be out about this stuff. Build something interesting and we'll always be willing to chat. As, as with our VC hat on or our engineer hat on. Do you do you always do warm intros? <laughs> uh, I think we have out a cold emails too. It depends on the quality of the cold email, but um, with high variance, but uh, yes. Okay, amazing. Perfect. So thank you so much for your time, Namdi. Uh, such an amazing conversation that we had. Uh, and I'm sure uh, the audience would enjoy it as much as we did. Uh, so thank you again for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was fun.